Access a new level of reliable and accurate voyage data. Predictive Fleet Analytics from Lloyd's List Intelligence saves you time, money and resource by enabling you to accurately track vessels, predict vessel movements and anticipate port congestion and delays in minutes. Predictive Fleet Analytics combines machine learning with our trusted foundational data to bring instant clarity and help you make better decisions. Our analytics will help you better predict a vessel's next move with estimated time of arrival at destination ports, estimated time to berth, estimated time of departure, and port turnaround times, all on one platform, tailored to your specific requirements. Navigate uncertainty and disruption from changing trade lanes and shifting supply chains with Predictive Fleet Analytics from Lloyd's List Intelligence. For more information and to book a trial, visit lloydslistintelligence.com or follow the link in the podcast description. A tipping point has been reached in the Red Sea. The industry is essentially now divided between those who have called the Middle East security risk as a mid-term diversion to be managed and those who are prepared to run the gauntlet of near-daily attacks on the basis that the Houthis will only target ships with an Israeli, US or UK nexus. Good luck with that. While container ships have been diverting away from the sewers since mid-December, tankers and bulkers finally started to make the call to follow them last week as US and UK airstrikes against the Houthis failed to stem attacks and insurance rates spiked in response. We're already seeing the impact of that as product tanker rates rallied this week, and the fallout's going to continue to be felt as we see who is and who is not prepared to sail past Yemen. 43 tankers, we've calculated, have diverted from the Red Sea since the US air-led strikes began on January the 12th. The wait-and-see period for shipping is well and truly over. So this week on the podcast, we are again talking about the Red Sea. We're going to be talking about the differing approaches to this risk and why an increasing amount of China-linked vessels are venturing where their Western counterparts are not. We're going to be discussing the evolving nature of the security threat. And one month into the coalition naval operation to protect shipping being set up, we're going to be talking about where the industry stands given the apparent failure of airstrikes to stem that threat. But first, I'm going to start this week where we started last week, with a quick catch-up from Michelle Vizy-Bockman, our principal analyst here at Lloyd's List Intelligence. Because while we are, like everyone else right now, analysing the impact of the diversions, and it's clear that the attacks on shipping in the Red Sea threaten to create a chaotic period for Europe's manufacturers and retailers as supply chains are disrupted, but it's also worth pointing out that there is still an awful lot of ships that are heading through the Red Sea and are not diverting. And that makes for some very interesting dynamics. So, Richard, I've just got off the Sea Search website looking in real time at what's going through the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. And I can see that traffic is largely reduced to Russia, Russian oil um, going southbound and bulk carriers, um, shipments of grain, iron ore, coal, steel, etc. is going through. Um, a lot of the tankers with cargoes of diesel, jet fuel, gas oil that were heading for Europe and the UK largely is either paused at that deviation point, waiting for uh, you know what to do, 
all their sailing around. I think there have been a lot of chats this week with marine insurers and with maritime lawyers to say, look, you know, this is a, a war risk. How are we going to treat it? What what has surprised me is that a lot of the ships that are going through the bulk carriers, they they do have US connections via Liberia or the Marshall Islands flag. And that for our listeners is because those flags are run on behalf of those countries by US incorporated co- uh, companies. And I understand that they're getting a lot of support from the US naval assets in that area to get them through safely. I think We've also seen that happen with French naval. The French Navy is helping some CMA, CGM and and French companies through as well. It really has turned into a geopolitical split. If you feel that you're on the quote unquote right side of the, the geopolitics, you feel that you can go through safely. If you're on the other side, the Western side largely, you are going around and that's all sort of crystallised in the last seven days. As we mentioned in last week's edition of the podcast, it's a little bit tricky offering you an accurate picture here because this is a fast-moving story that continues to develop. As we record this week's edition, we're being told that there is another significant airstrike about to launch against the Houthis and another US ship may or may not have been hit. This is a story that I'm afraid is still playing out, so I urge you all to head to loyalist.com for the latest information. But in the meantime, here is our resident data queen, Bridget Dyken, with a snapshot of the latest patterns in vessel movements. Yeah, so importantly, it's we have to remember that the Red Sea isn't closed. Um, there, It has taken a stumble in traffic, but there's definitely still open for business and you see, still see vessels passing through every day. So broadly speaking... We've got about 270 vessels that are active on a daily basis in the Red Sea. So that's considering cargo carrying vessels over 10,000 DWT. Um, And to compare, the average in the first two weeks of December was 394 vessels per day. So a drop, but again, it's not everything. And there's still movement, um, especially up in the northern area of the Red Sea. Now, I want to focus on the Bab el-Mandeb in particular, because there we're seeing a pretty significant um, plummet in, in traffic. So the week running to January 14th, we see 46 ships transiting each day, uh, down from about 48 the week before. So it's kind of stabilized at this point. Um, but a caveat there is, of course, a lot has changed in the past week as well. Um, and when we get the new numbers, we'll be able to see if this has dropped off further. So to compare, in early December, we're looking at about 75 passings per day. So activity was basically the same up until mid-December when the container ships started leaving, and now others are following suit. So we see massive drops in gas tankers, vehicle carriers, and now seeing kind of product tankers and crude as well. Um, Another important thing to note is that this analysis does consider dark activity. So we are seeing an increase in vessels trying to pass through um, areas around Yemen with their AIS off. So there's about 50 AIS gaps in the first two weeks of the year of vessels trying to pass the Bab el-Mandeb, which is higher than it usually is, but it's actually only around 8% of the total transits. And this is largely being driven by container ships. So the major container lines that are still operating in the Red Sea, such as CMA, CGM, they basically, it seems like they've instructed their vessels to to turn off AIS um, at the time of passing. Um, But we are seeing a 
bit of an uptick in bulk carriers and product tankers now who are doing the same thing. As interesting as the diversions are, and they're probably not as large as some people are making out, perhaps the more interesting story is in looking at those who are staying. Russian crude transits through the Red Sea, for example, have continued. And as we reported earlier today at the point of this podcast being recorded, Russia has sailed past Saudi Arabia to become the biggest source of Chinese oil imports, supplying about 20%, or just under. That's likely the absolute cap on what China is going to accept from any single supplier. So I wanted to look a little bit deeper into the varying appetites for risk in the Red Sea this week. Sishin Chen, our Asia editor, has been looking into the growing number of China-linked ships that are bucking the trend and deliberately making a play of entering the Houthi hotspot. While Bridget's already pointed out that we've tracked a 38% dip in traffic overall through the Bab el-Mendev Strait, we have also noticed smaller vessels owned or managed by Chinese companies that have begun to quietly start joining what was seen as a fairly lucrative and relatively safe trading lane for Chinese tonnage. And in case you're wondering why I mentioned Russia, well, it's worth pointing out that 17 out of the 27 Chinese-related vessels that we've identified as passing through the Red Sea since mid-December have involved port calls in, you guessed it, Russia. Here's Sitchin. Well, obviously, you know, I think it's divided between the sort of well-established global brand Chinese shipping companies like Costco and China Merchant and the sort of, uh, you know, uh, privately run, uh, you know, uh, low-profile, smaller Chinese owners and operators. You know, for the sort of large, you know, state-owned conglomerates like Costco and China Merchants, um, I think they are just following suit of their Western competitors, uh, largely, uh-huh. you know, shining away the Red Sea roads uh, because, you know, obviously, um, you know, they, they, they're operating globally. They don't want to seem as, you know, a friendly partner of the Hodes uh, mm-hmm. and, and the Yemen, you know, rebels, um, which might sort of, you know, bring them troubles uh, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, potentially losing clients in the West or even sort of being targeted by, you know, the U.S. government. You, you never know. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh you know what I've seen so far is that is that at least on the container shipping side, you know, uh, the vast majority of of, of the Coast Coast ships have uh, uh, have been rerouting uh, around the uh, Cape of Good Hope. Uh, so far, only two Coast Coast ships have entered the Red Sea, uh, and they caught sort of the uh, Red Sea terminal um, uh, 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 where in in. Ja- in, in, in Jada port where they has a uh, where they have a stake um, uh, but on the other side you know as you said you know a lot of the uh, Chinese shipping companies have a different risk appetite they see uh, this as an opportunity rather sort of risk uh, to make profits um, uh, we've uh, noticed a much uh, uh, increase of the proportion of China-linked container ships uh, in the Red Sea, uh, you know, following the uh, escalation uh, of the Holy attacks uh, in mid-December. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think previously 
sort of the share of the Chinese vessel among the total container ship transiting Red Sea uh, is, you know, uh, below 15%. But, you know, in the recent two weeks, we've seen that proportion rise to uh, 24 and 28%. So that's quite significant increase. And if you look at if you look into these vessels, um, interestingly, uh, you know many of them. Actually, most of them, uh, seventeen out of twenty-four of them, are actually involved in trade with Russia. So I think that yeah. shows, you know, sort of the Russian element is still a key feature of those Chinese vessels active. Actively, actively transiting in the Red Sea, uh, which probably comes as no surprise to sort of many, uh, you know, observers. You know, given sort of the relationship between uh, China, Russia, uh, and Iran, uh, which is said to be, you know, backing the the Houthis. Um, so, uh, so another interesting aspect of it is that a lot of the vessels, uh, you know. Uh, now being deployed on the Red Sea roads are actually switched from other trades since uh, October when the latest Israel and, uh, you know, uh, Palestinian conflict started. So, but we we don't know what's sort of exactly the reason behind this, but... um, but obviously, I think probably some of the first movers have already seen the opportunity, you know, and they, they've started to sort of, you know, uh, uh, take actions. It's worth noting here, the official line from China is that they have called on all relevant parties to ensure the safety of navigation in the Red Sea. Beijing, of course, is treading a delicate diplomatic line. The Houthis last week indicated that China and Russia would probably have no issues getting their ships through. But we know that the US has been pressing China over whether it can apply pressure on Iran, which, of course, backs the Yemen-based Houthis. Meanwhile, of course, China is taking in more and more oil from both Russia and Iran. So China's Ministry of Commerce has stopped short of singling diplomatic or military assistance to defuse the crisis in the waterway, but keep tuned to lawyerslist.com on this story because there is definitely more to come on this. Of course, it's not just the Chinese and Russian dark fleet prepared to trust the Houthis' somewhat problematic statements regarding who they will and won't target. There are still plenty of Western shipping companies going through who are ready to take the risk premiums. Nigel Lowry, our Greece correspondent, has been taking the temperature in Athens amongst the Greek shipping community and their attitude towards risk versus reward. Yeah, look, um, uh, as as we all know, uh, you know Greeks are uh, the largest uh, ship-owning country. There's, you know, many, many players. Um, there are probably as many different views as players. Uh, and these people keep a very, very close eye on what is a very, very fast-changing situation. So at any given time, uh, it's a movable feast. You know, uh, individuals' view of the risk to be run right here and now is going to be changing. Uh, uh, The shipping organizations can't tell their individual company members what to do. 
but the clear advice is to stay away from the region if at all possible. And, uh, and if you have to transit the danger zone, then follow the instructions of the international naval forces operating in the region now. So, you know, the priority for most Greek ship owners is always the safety of their crew. Uh, they tend to be very close to their crew, whether they are Greeks or Filipinos or, or whatever nationality. Uh, and I would imagine now from what I'm hearing that the majority of Greek owners are giving the region a, a wide berth, the danger zone, a wide berth already. Uh, no matter whether they're tankers, bulkers, or, or container ships, obviously. Uh, the safety of the crew is paramount. Um, you know, at the same time, they're appalled uh, at the idea of any interference with freedom of navigation. Uh, they are a cross-trading uh, shipping industry entirely. Uh, and so they are entirely dependent on freedom of navigation and always have uh, have been, and so they're absolutely appalled. Um, there are still some, uh, as you know, who uh, seem to be continuing to accept business and, uh, and running the gauntlet, as it were. Probably they would have been, uh, it's probably not the right word, but encouraged to some extent from the limited damage uh, and uh, and lack of loss of life, as far as I can recall, that has occurred in the attacks to date. Uh, so uh, at the moment, it would seem that you know, ships or, or the targeting is off, or ships are resilient enough to uh, to not be crippled or or to sort of suffer a fatal attack. Possibly that is feeding into the the risk appetite of some of those who are still going through. Um, but others, whilst noting that, you know, they, they sort of say, but you can't be complacent about that because, you know, it, it, all, it, it is also a matter of luck. Um, they do say also that um, as they're watching insurance and war risks costs uh, rise in the region, that the idea that diverting around the Cape is an enormous additional expense. Uh, they are saying also that now, comparatively speaking, uh, it's probably not. It's not uh, such a huge cost for the owner or charter. Uh, of course, compared with the, the, the actual added cost of going through the Red Sea now. Um, uh, of course, it remains to be seen what the effect of all this is going to be on the cost of living for societies around the world in, in terms of price increases. Because one way or another, that's going to happen. But for the, own, for the owner and the charterer, uh, perhaps uh, it's not a sort of prohibitive cost uh, anymore to divert when you, when you stack up the cost of the alternative and the risks. Um, I, you know, I, I think that's what's happening on the ground. Of course, the crews themselves, which are, are the primary concern, the safety of the crew, the crews themselves have a say in this. And already there's, uh, there's information coming through that... Um, uh, that, that there are crews who are refusing, quite understandably, to go there. Um, and that will become an increasing factor as well. Uh, and there are other crews who are, who are seafarers who are weighing up their own risk and reward scenario and beginning to talk about uh, 
well, if we're going to if we're going to go, we're going to have to have an incentive financially to do so, to run the risk. Understanding the incentives to reroute is key to understanding why we've not seen a more universal rerouting around the Cape of Good Hope. The divergence in timing was partly a function of legal risk as much as it was security concerns. While the container line's ability to pass on costs to their customers is relatively simple and secured the added bonus of absorbing excess capacity in the market, the calculation was much more complex elsewhere. Neither the owner nor the charterers were willing to be the ones to make the first call and potentially incur legal claims as a result. That standoff was partly superseded by the rising insurance premiums that started spiking last week as it became clear that the US airstrikes were not going to be working particularly quickly. On paper, the additional rates being quoted by some people in the market would have represented an additional $1.3 million on the cost of a single trip for a brand new VLCC. But it was also a function of timing. While the owners and the charters were waiting for each other to blink on the existing charters, all new business was being quickly repriced on the assumption of a diversion away from the Red Sea. Western traders and brokers by midweek last week were near universal in reporting a wide-scale move away from taking any new business in the Red Sea for the majority of Western owners. But as we've already said in the podcast, there is a significant body of business prepared to take the risks and the premiums now on offer for those who buck that trend. Of course, all that depends on the security situation, and that, as we've discussed before, is an evolving picture. So what about it? It's now a month since the International Coalition was formed to protect merchant shipping from attacks by Yemen's Houthi group, and we've seen the stance shift from defensive to offensive as the US and UK targeted a series of airstrikes against the Houthi weapons. The main conclusion from that so far is that it's not working particularly quickly. The US and UK, we understand, are exploring ways to step up their campaign. But they need to do that without provoking a broader war, with a focus on targeting Iranian resupplies and launching more aggressive, preemptive strikes. That's a pretty high-risk strategy that could yet put the US in direct conflict with Iran and provide the sort of regional conflagration that President Joe Biden said he definitely wanted to avoid. So where does all that leave shipping? Well, here's Martin Kelly, Head of Advisory at the Security Consultants EOS Risk Group, for a solid expert view on where we stand right now. I think if we were to dissect how the risk has evolved since the um, Israel-Hamas conflict began to shipping in the Red Sea, there are two main areas to discuss. And the first is the threat profile or the target profile, what types of ships are being targeted uh, and their affiliations. And the second is actually the area which has changed over the past uh, week or so. And so if we look at the affiliation to ships, first of all, the Houthis began to target ships with direct links to Israel. Um, and so we are talking here about, are we allowed to say shipping companies here, by the way? Are we allowed to refer? Okay. Okay, so we're talking here about um, companies such as Zodiac, Ray Cars, which um, have been hit by Iranian missiles and drones in the Arabian Sea in the past. Um, and they were really the primary target for um, the Houthis in the Red Sea. And then these uh, companies with direct links to Israel stopped transiting through the Red Sea. And the Houthis still really needed to impose this uh, maritime blockade on Israel. And so it evolved its threat profile to begin targeting ships that were trading 
at Israeli ports. And I think the first time that we saw this was against the Strinder in the Red Sea and Ashdod Port Authority actually published that Strinder was due to call there in January of this year. Then vessels uh, started to hide or change their AAS information, uh, which made it a little bit more difficult for the Houthis to target ships uh, accurately. And then there were instances where ships were targeted owing to historic links to Israel. So maybe the ownership or the management had changed, but it had not been updated on open source channels. And then the third real change in target profile comes after the UK and US joint airstrikes into Yemen. The Houthis vowed to respond by attacking US and UK flagged ships in the region. Uh, and since sort of the 13th of January, we have really seen that begin to manifest with ships being hit um, in the Gulf of Aden. And that is a, a nice segue really into the, the, the second point to discuss here, which is the target area. Until the 12th of January, ships were almost exclusively targeted in the Red Sea. However, the Ike Carrier uh, Strike Group transited into the Red Sea from the Gulf of Aden uh, and a vessel that is suspected to be providing information to the Houthis, an Iranian flag vessel called the Bashand, moved from the Red Sea into the Gulf of Aden. Now, Bashand has been in the Red Sea then for uh, around two years since its predecessor, MV Saviz, was targeted with uh, Israeli limpet mines. And so it's likely that Bashand is providing targeting data to the Houthis, uh, to the area where there is now less air coverage because the air carrier strike group was gone. And we've really seen that develop this week with uh, three confirmed incidents in the past three days. And then there were other incidents of failed missile uh, and drone attacks against ships in the Gulf of Aden. So, I mean, essentially, the scope of who might be hit is expanding. The scope of where you might be hit is expanding. Obviously, we've seen a an increased naval presence and we have operation prosperity guardian as the the banner group that is seeking to protect shipping but it's fair to say that there is not a universal approach here you you have uh naval assets under that command nominally but you have the french navy escorting french ships you have the indian navy coming to the rescue of indian ships it, it, it still feels a little bit fragmented, to be honest. Is, is that a fair assessment as a security analyst looking at this? Yeah, I would agree with that. To implement a task group of this magnitude um, takes time, particularly to agree rules of force, rules of engagement, uh, a command structure, uh, such as um, I'm, I'm trying to put this into uh, basic terms, but how ships will delegate which ships to protect and if there will be any sort of escorting duties. Um, and so Operation Prosperity Guardian has really had some success in shooting down missiles, but some ships are still being hit. And so you mentioned that there are countries which are conducting domestic missions, national missions, the French, the Indians. There's also a Chinese counterparty task group um, that's based out of Djibouti that has not um, involved itself at all in any of the protection of shipping in this part of the world. Um, and so, in short, I think absolutely this is a, a fragmented um, organization. I mean, in terms of uh, you know looking at the capabilities of the the Houthis and the capabilities of the naval forces in order to protect it. I mean, obviously, you have a far superior uh, you know defense force and, and 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 weapons systems on the on the naval ships. The the Houthis, I guess, one view is. They're not very good at 
targeting because we actually we haven't seen a huge amount of damage being meted out by the attacks. The counter argument to that is they don't need to because if the ultimate uh, you know goal of the Houthis is to disrupt trade, then they have done that regardless of whether they have caused a huge amount of damage. I mean, how much physical threat do you think the ships are under from these Houthi attacks? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. The aim here is really to disrupt shipping. And so if they were to continue to launch missiles without hitting a ship, I think shipping companies would still be averse to transiting there because of the risk. We're talking risk here. There is still intent and there's still a capability to conduct these attacks. But there has not been a significant injury or death in any of the 43 Houthi attacks against ships in this part of the world. And you can even extend that to include the Iranian tax against Israeli shipping in the region, other than the incident with Mercer Street where, where two people were killed. And this week we saw really the first images of um, damage against a vessel that was hit with a, with a drone. And it looks bad, although actually the, the size of it, it could have been much worse. The, these missiles and drones will probably not sink the ships that are going through there. They're just designed to cause damage um, and probably not to kill seafarers as they transit the Red Sea. Is is that more luck than judgment, or are they just not particularly powerful weapons that are being used here? I, I think it's judgment. I think the anti-ship cruise missiles are designed to hit the ship on or around the waterline. Um, the ballistic missiles, similar, will have a, a section of the ship to hit. As they conduct an approach to the vessel, they will conduct a shallow dive. And so they're always aiming down to, towards the hull rather than the main superstructure and hitting the bridge. Drones are probably controlled, so there is a man in the loop that will control where which part of the ship the drone hits. And I don't think the intent is to fly a drone into the bridge of a ship. It is just designed to, as you mentioned, disrupt the shipping in the Red Sea. A final note before we end this week's edition of the podcast. We're talking here about risk and reward at a high level, but those odds are rarely a matter of discussion with crews. We're aware of at least one incident where a crew refused to enter the Red Sea only to be told they didn't have a choice, and contract termination would be the only real conclusion should they not reconsider. They reconsidered, and that ship sailed into the Red Sea. It's also worth recalling that the crew of the Galaxy Leader remained hostage to this situation after they were seized by the Houthis back in November. So, yes, we should argue strongly that the principle of freedom of navigation should be upheld, and yes... We should highlight how safe trade of essential goods is essential to the global economy. And we also join the calls for the de-escalation of the situation. But let's not also forget that this is about the seafarers here, who are the innocent victims, and their safety is paramount. We will be back again in a week, as ever, with more on the story shaping shipping. But for now, thank you for listening, and have a good week. Goodbye. Goodbye.